0: We are going to kick off the finale of uh, Elephant in the Family Room by throwing it back to uh, sometime in the 1970s. So,
1: let's have at it. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away, and he was talking for a new it, and as he grew, he'd say, I'm So I'm gonna be like you And the cat's in the cradle and a silver spoon Little boy blue and the man on the moon When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when But we'll get together then, son You know we'll have a good time then My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad, come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today, I got a lot to do. He said, that's OK. And he walked away, but smile never dimmed. and said, I'm going to be like him, yeah. You know I'm going to be like him. And the cat's in the cradle and a silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man of the moon When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when We'll get together then, son You know we'll have a good time then Well, he came from college just the other day so much like a man, I just had to say, son, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? He shook his head and he said with a smile, What I'd really like, dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? And the cat's in the cradle and a silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you're coming home, son, I don't know when. We'll get together then. Know we'll have a good time then. Ooh, 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 ooh. Well, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day Oh, little boy blue
0: Wasn't going to play the whole thing, and then I realized I'm old. There's probably a lot of people in the room that don't know that song, so uh, maybe I need to play it so they do. There's a problem with elephants, especially the ones which reside in our family rooms. These elephants, these big things, these issues that we've been talking about over these last bunch of weeks that cause pain or strife or isolation or separation in families. The things that everybody knows that exist there, but nobody wants to deal with. I mean, for Harry Chapin, right, it was his travel and his work, constantly putting his job and his career first. The thing is about elephants, these elephants, they don't just die. They don't live out a natural life and then just crawl into the corner and pass away. You tend to hand them down from your living room to your kid's living room, they're almost like pack animals. They, they multiply and they move and they grow from generation into the next and then into the next and into the next. And so today, in today, a final message of this, I hope it's been somewhat helpful to you and your family. I know it's been challenging. I've gotten a lot of emails about the messages, so I know I know that these are hard things. But I hope, uh, if anything, the, these talks have been encouragements for all of us to deal with with these things, these elephants in our family room. Now, if you remember, we kicked off this series a bunch of weeks ago with a powerful story of family dysfunction. One of the emails I got said, my family puts fun in dysfunction. So I said, well, that's cute. But there's a lot of dysfunction in the biblical stories that are handed down. In fact, there's especially, if you look in the Old Testament, but almost almost exclusively in the Scripture, there's tons of stories of family dysfunction. We started with with the the dysfunction of the family in the family of King David, the guy who wrote most of the Psalms you're so familiar with. See, David's family had an elephant that nobody dealt with because it was difficult. He didn't know how to handle it. Uh, If you remember, it was his son Amnon and his son Amnon had had raped his daughter Tamar. Amnon, if you remember, had come up with an elaborate plan of how he was going to do it. And Once he had committed kind of this vile act. He, he threw his sister out. In fact, the Bible says that after it was over, he now hated her more than he had previously lusted for her. And so Tamar walks out, kind of an abused woman, and her, her other brother Absalom sees uh, his sister broken and her clothes ripped. And he's, he discovers what happened, and he is he's enraged about it. He doesn't feel good about it. He's upset about it. But does anybody remember what his solution for dealing with his frustration and anger and disappointment was? Don't say anything. In fact, he told Tamar, quote, Be quiet, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Tut-tut. Don't let it in too bad. Move on. And there, right in the middle of King David's living room, between a son and two sons and a daughter and a father and an elephant. The Bible says that David, King David heard about this. He never addressed it. It says Absalom, quote, never said a word to Amnon either, good or bad. He, he never talked to his brother again. In fact, it says he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister. But he never said a word. And so the elephant grows and it metastasizes And the story continues, and Absalom eventually extracts his revenge, and he kills Amnon. Now, you have to wonder what might have happened had King David ever said, can we get together and talk about this? Can I play the role of father in this family? And bridge some unity, bridge some peace, bridge some understanding. But it was hush, hush, hush. Later on, David, he's feeling so guilty Because Absalom has now disappeared because he can't come home because he's killed Amnon. Later on, David is convicted of of maybe some of this guilt of his silence, of not dealing with the issue, of understanding that maybe some of this was because of how he had raised his sons. And he misses his son so much that he orders his son home, but the scripture says that David refused to let his son see his face. You can come home, but I, This, this relationship, I'm not sure I'm prepared to deal with you. And the story in the family deteriorates to a point of civil war in Israel, and eventually David on the run and Absalom being killed. And, and it ends with this plaintive cry, one of the saddest cries in all the scripture, when David hears about the final destruction, the, the elephants coming home to roost about the death of his son. And, and David cries out, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. If only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. Why didn't I do something? Why didn't I say something? Both sons are dead, thousands of dead soldiers in Israel, a daughter broken by rape of her brother and the silence of a father, and all David can do when it's over is regret words never spoken, regret, regret elephants never driven out of his living room. These things, We we can choose not to deal with them, and often we don't. I have to tell you, I know nobody likes to deal with the elephants in the living room. I know these are hard conversations. I know that you can't control the response of those that you're going to. But these elephants don't go away. They don't go into corners and die. You don't take them with you. You leave them behind. It's a Harry Chapin principle. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me my boy was just like me writer of proverbs got this in a way i don't think that we get i think we read this and we misunderstand what the writer of proverbs was saying in chapter 13 in verse 22 he says this a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children now you and i read this especially in morris county new jersey where we live We are so concerned about the financial inheritance that we're leaving to our children. We get the life insurance plan in place. We take out the term policy in our 50s and 60s to make sure that, you know, there'll be a significant death benefit there. We get the family trust provisions in place. We hire wealth managers and estate planners. We figure out ways to minimize death taxes, all in order to hand down a financial legacy. Now, if that's you, I would challenge you with this. Have you spent a tenth of that time working on any other kind of legacy to your family other than your financial legacy? Because I don't think the writer of Proverbs was talking about your money. He's talking about your legacy, he's talking about the elephants that you're either handing down or you're dealing with now? What kind of spiritual inheritance? What kind of faith inheritance? What kind of elephant inheritance are you leaving behind? And are you willing to work just as hard on that one as you are your financial one? Because I have to be honest with you, the financial one's easy. Anybody can do that. The truth is, The truth is that one will echo on into the future of your family for generations, but your money will be long ago spent. Abraham, many of you know, if you know the Bible, Abraham is the father of the faith. He's the only man in the Bible that is referred to as a friend of God. Abraham, whom the scripture speaks of of in incredibly um, reverent terms. The New Testament speaks of the depth of the faith of Abraham, who followed God and who was saved by his faith. But here's what I need you to know, oh, Christian friends of mine, you can love God and still leave lots of elephants behind for your family to deal with over generations. Let me show you, let me show you one in the life of Abraham, a man whose faith we're called to emulate. It starts in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 13. Abraham picks up, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham goes down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, that would later have her name come to be known as Sarah, he looks at his wife and he says, I know what a beautiful woman you are, and when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, This is his wife. And then they'll kill me, but they're going to let you live. And so Abraham makes a very interesting decision here say that you're my sister so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And so here, right there, you, you can blow right by that in, in your quiet time, in your devotion. You can blow right by that. But the titan of our faith, things get a little dicey for a moment. His neck winds up the line, and he makes an interesting choice. He says, I'm going to lie. Actually, she was his half-sister, so he doesn't totally lie. He, just, he, he says, I'm going to lie in order to get out of this. So what I want you to see is this is not likely a one-time event for Abraham. My guess is that there is a pattern that begins to develop, and you're going to see this in his life of playing fast and loose with the truth. Gilding the lily a bit, if you will. You know, just telling one half-truth or another half-truth to get out of trouble that comes into his life. This wasn't a one-time occurrence. It's probably something that recurred. In fact, later on in the book of Genesis... Does this sound familiar? Genesis chapter 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while he said in Harar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she's my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Harar, sent for Sarah and took her. Again, Abraham, great man of faith, loved God, but in order to get what he wants or needs, He would lie. And so Abraham and Sarah have a son. And they name him Isaac. And just a few chapters later in this opening book of the Bible, and I think this story is there because it's an important story. It's it's kind of the, the situation we find ourselves in generation after generation. Just a few chapters later, Isaac gets himself in a bind. And what do you think? Who do you think Isaac learned how to get out of a bind from? My boy was just like me. Isaac and his wife Rebecca, Rebecca are traveling, and, and what does he tell the men of that city, quote? This is from Genesis 26:7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, "She's my sister." because he was afraid to say she's my wife." He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful. Sound familiar? And boom, there it is. Thus is born a generational pattern of sin and dysfunction in a family that echoes down through the generational line. It, it, it will grow. Watch. It will grow. And it will metastasize and it will destroy. And this is why I'm just going to keep pushing us and me and you and my family and your family that, that we have to deal with the things that we don't want to deal with, especially the ones, church, hear me now, especially the ones that you got handed to the ones handed down to you because if we just become like the generation before and hand it down it doesn't go away on its own your elephants don't go away they go right down to your kids family rooms and eventually left unchecked they destroy next generation abraham, uh, abraham when we had isaac right in the next generation watch what happens to the lies the lies grow the lies metastasize the lies draw the, the, the lies destroy the lies become directed towards the immediate family members now and not towards people just outside trying to save your neck. Rebekah and her son Jacob schemed to deceive now Isaac into giving second-born Jacob the, the firstborn blessing that had belonged to his older brother Esau. Rebecca had seen this pattern of lying, and she was aware of it, and taking advantage of Isaac's failing eyesight, Jacob deceived his own father. Some of you know the story, right? He puts on um, fur onto his arms. His brother was a hairy man so that that when his blind father tries to see who it is that he's passing on the birthright, you'll see it here. Jacob said to his father, "'I'm Esau, your firstborn.'" He's lying. "'I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so, so that you may give me your blessing.'" And Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Oh, the Lord God gave me success, he replied. He lied again. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so that I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. And so Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. See, he, he lied again. Understand the power of this story. The elephant birthed by Abraham, left unchecked and unresolved by Isaac, actually comes back and is used against Isaac, just like David's silence with what happened to Tamar. The elephants in your family rooms, the ones that were handed down to you by your mom and dad and their mom and dad, when left unchecked, they wind up coming back to bite us, to bite the generations that come with us bigger, badder, worse. They become more dangerous. Because Abraham's story goes on, The lying now moves from being used to protect oneself by lying to strangers, to lying to each other in the family, to the point of being used to bring about destruction within the family. Because decades later, Jacob's sons now deceive him concerning the welfare of his son Joseph. The older brothers became jealous of Joseph's favor with Jacob, and so they sell him into slavery, and they cover their tracks, and they come to their father, father, and they show him a fake coat that they had rigged up with blood to make it look like that Joseph had been killed. Genesis 37, they got Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, they dipped the robe in blood. You see what the lying does. You see where it takes you. And they took the ornate robe back to the father and said, We found this examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And it wasn't until years later that Jacob discovered the truth about what had happened to his son, Joseph. And so this is the last talk about these ma- these things, these matters, these heavy things. I, I've been trying to get us to deal with elephants in our family rooms because they wind up not just being your problem. You might say, well, I'd say, you know, I, things aren't good in my marriage, things aren't good with my kids, things aren't good with you know, with my addictions, but it's just, it's my problem. Here's the truth of the scripture. It's not your problem. It's not just your problem. Your elephants wind up being generational problems. Calling cards of sin, which become over time affiliated, this is a hard thing to say, but I need you to hear it. Patterns of sin, which become affiliated with your family. And when it comes to these things, these generational patterns of sin, here's what I need you to hear from me. Silence for your family, for your kids and their kids and their kids, really is deadly. And that's why this Proverbs writer speaks of this general, generational echo. See, a good man, a good woman, leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so there's a very profound question as we finish this very difficult topic. And it's this: what elephants that you are you refusing to tackle? That you're leaving behind? Because you're not, it's not just gonna, they don't die with you. Maybe it's even a better question to, to ask you what elephants were you handed? What was given to you, what generational sin pattern was passed down to you, not because your mom and dad are bad or your grandma and grandpa are evil or anything like that. Your mom and dad and your grandma and grandpa are the exact same as you are, broken, touched by sin. And so unwillingly, these things get passed down and inherited into our lives. And what generational sins patterns, the question for you is which ones have been passed into your home undealt with? Now you might, it's frustrating for me sometimes about Christian people. They might hear this stuff and go, ah, this is psychobabble. I don't need any of that stuff. Here's what I need you to understand this is a profound biblical principle, it's almost promised in a way. In my role as pastor and counselor, if I meet with you, and I meet with a lot of people, uh, I will often ask you to tell me your story, about who you are, where you came from, what you're doing in my office, because that story, the one that you were birthed into, the one that one contains within it generational sin patterns. That the unchecked elephant if you will which is still roaming in your life today likely at greater levels i've heard lots of christian people diminish the counseling idea of going back and looking at your past looking at your family they say silly things like oh don't dwell on that or or just move on here's what i would tell you wrong you're wrong In fact, here's what the Bible says. Not only have you likely not moved on from these generational sin patterns, you've likely been enslaved to them. And you don't even realize it. You carry it around like a chain, pulling back 20 generations. There's a pretty radical promise echoed in the Bible. It's actually in three or four places But maybe nowhere more famously in Exodus chapter 20. If you're familiar with the scriptures, Exodus chapter 20. is the second book in the Bible. And this is where God is giving his people the Ten Commandments. And and so he comes to this commandment about not committing idolatry, not not having idols. And and we've talked about this at Mentum. Idolatry is essentially the root sin all of us have most of the time making ourselves the idol. But here's what God says to his people regarding this. Exodus chapter 20 verse 5. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, these idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. I don't like that verse. Now, it gets misunderstood often. I need you to understand it because it's easy to believe that if you just read it without understanding it in its totality that, that God is this vengeful, angry father and he's intentionally punishing great-grandchildren for the sins committed by someone generations earlier. In fact, in order that you have to understand it correctly, I'm going to give you another two contrarian thoughts that you, that, because you, you have to look at the Scripture in totality as a whole and when you don't, you get yourself messed up. Ezekiel chapter 18 makes this principle very clear, chapter 20. This is what Ezekiel says to God's people. Look, it's the one who sins who's the one who's going to die. The child doesn't share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The the righteousness of the righteous is credited to them. The wickedness of the wicked is charged against them. In fact, Around Israel, when the the, the prophet was writing, there was a little saying in town about what happens to children. Remember, there's another story you might be familiar with, It when uh, there was somebody born blind and Jesus' followers said to them, Well, who sinned, this man or his parents? There was a lot of thought around town that God punishes the children of, of uh, of, of evildoers. And so they had a little saying, but here's what Ezekiel chapter 18 says about the saying. The word of the Lord came to me again, quote, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? In other words, the father did something and the children paid for it. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. That's not right. That's not true. That's not how it works. Here's how to understand the promise of God in, in chapter 20. Your family dysfunction, your general pattern of brokenness and sin and the consequences of it are passed down from parent to child, from generation to generation. Here's the principle. Scripture, we have this, I think uh, you can put it up because you might want to write it down. Scripture clearly communicates that consequences, not curses, consequences are passed on through generations. Now, this might make you feel a little better. I'm glad that God is not actively going to punish my great-grandchildren for my porn addiction. But the truth is just as powerful. Your sin, your brokenness, the elephants in your living room are going to be passed down from generation into generation until they likely grow and become more powerful, pervasive, and problematic unless you deal with the elephant the choice you make with what to do with it is not just going to be about what happens to you. Now, some of these things, these problems, are more easily understood than others. For example, if alcohol is an issue in your family, and alcohol is an issue in my family, on both sides of my family, and on both sides of my kids' family, do you know that if you are a child of an alcoholic, you are four times more likely to struggle with alcohol yourself? Do you know that? I warn my kids about this all the time. It doesn't mean that, uh, that you're not a man of faith. It doesn't mean you don't love God. But it likely means there was an elephant in your home growing up and it never got dealt with, and guess who owns him now? If your parents divorced. It doesn't mean your parents are bad people. Okay, but if your parents divorced, you are 40% more likely to have your marriage end in divorce than, than the kids of enduring marriages. There are much more even subtle yet powerful forces at work here. Children of parents who are unfaithful in their marriages, children of parents who cheat, are twice as likely to cheat on their spouses. See, it's not God doing this stuff. This isn't being reflected, it's, it's the sin of the fathers being revisited in the lives of their children. Sons of abusive men tend to be disparaging of and superior to girls and women. And when they reach adolescence, for example, they lack empathy for girls, having been conditioned by their fathers to shut themselves off from caring about the feelings of, other, of females. How about this? Studies also show that in homes where men verbally or physically abuse their spouses, their daughters, not just their sons, their daughters, wind up repeating this pattern and often wind up marrying men that will eventually abuse them. You see, it wasn't just your boy that winded up just like you. Your girl chose someone just like you. Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters, here is what the scripture promises. Apart from dealing with this stuff, apart from being a strong man or woman of God, a coming from, apart from coming to a life-altering meeting with Jesus Christ when you can actually plug into a new life source that can flow through you, that will allow your heart and your spirit to be transformed, apart from that work, if you do nothing, if you do nothing, here is the promise of the Bible, Your crud will become their crud. I wish it weren't true. I wish sometimes it was just easier. Your overindulgence will become their their addiction. Your wandering eye will become their cheating heart. Your financial laziness will become their foreclosures. Your Your cruel words may become their closed fists. Fathers and mothers, please hear this. Your boys and your girls are going to grow up just like you. Fathers, your daughters are going to marry someone just like you, for the good and the bad of it. Mothers, your sons are going to wind up with women just like you. Because they wind up not just looking for the person, they wind up looking for somebody that they are comfortable with the dysfunction of, in a sense, and your elephant echoes from generation to generation to generation. But there's hope. There's hope because the scripture always shows us, here's the natural condition of man. The scripture says, with with man, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And Exodus 20, uh, chapter 20, did not just stop where I paused it. Because you can change generational patterns of sin. You don't have to live with a chain going back six generations. Because here's how God continues uh, for his people. The Lord says, I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But, and maybe the biggest but in all of the scripture. But, but, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. A thousand generations you have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit in a transformed heart to break the power of generational sin patterns in your family and that inheritance that inheritance unlike your financial inheritance that you're so worried about that in financial inheritance will not go on, but that generational sin pattern that is broken will go on not for three or four generations, but for thousands of generations. That's who you are. You can break the power of generational sin patterns. So here's what I, I want to show you. I want to give you a couple quick things that you need to think about doing as we, as we close. Here's the first one you need to recognize in your family and your home what the generational sin pattern is. What was the cup passed down to you? And you need to be honest about the problem. This is not about bashing mom or dad or not wanting to say things about anybody in the family. I get all that stuff, okay? I get it. But you need to be honest about what you were handed. Now, you might not see this, Here's, I'm gonna push you here. You might not see this because you know why? These generational sin patterns, this family dysfunction, you know what it is to you when you're raised in it? Normal. I could tell you some stories of my own. I had a great family, but I I could tell you some stuff that I didn't realize was not normal until a long time later. And it's funny, when my when my wife told me it was abnormal, you know what I told her? You're abnormal. It took about 20 years to realize, holy smokes, it's me. You people all knew that a long time ago. But you need to to find somebody. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's a friend. The truth is you probably treat your wife the way you saw your dad treat his wife. Now, who trained your dad how to treat his wife? His dad. And so... Probably, you probably, you didn't get a book on this. You didn't go to college to learn how to raise a kid. You know who you're raising your kids like? The generational pattern that was handed to you. Ladies, you speak to the husband the way you saw your mom speak to her husband. Sometimes the most difficult part is you have to have the boldness and the courage. is not an insult to your family. I am not insulting your family. Jesus' family had patterns of dysfunction. We talked about it earlier in the, in the series. Let me give you this one. In 1874, a member of the New York State Prison Board noticed that six members of the same family were incarcerated in New York State prisons at the exact same time. It's fascinating. So the board thought this was out of the uh, the usual and they did some research and they looked back generations to try to find the original couple who initiated this tragic family legacy. This is the secular understanding, of it. I would tell you, who started a generational sin pattern. And so they trace the family back line back to an ancestor in 1720, a man considered lazy and godless with a reputation as the town troublemaker. He was an alcoholic and he was viewed as having low moral character. To make matters worse, he married a woman who was much like himself and together they had six daughters and two sons. Check this out. Here's what the report revealed about the approximately 1,200 descendants of this couple who were alive in 1874. You ready? 310 were homeless, 160 were prostitutes, 180 suffered from drug or alcohol abuse, 150 were criminals who spent time in prison, including seven for murder. They also found that the state of New York had spent $1.5 million, a shockingly high number at this time, to care for this line of descendants, and not one had made a significant contribution to society. See so you, you. likely need to figure out what it is. You need to take it seriously. Here's the second thing. Second thing is, once you recognize the generational sin pattern, you have to take responsibility for your contribution for it or to it. This is not all about blame. You played a role in this. This is not about blaming mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. See Isaac, he got a hand to him, but he chose to deceive. Jacob, he got a hand to him. He chose to lie. Yes, it was easier, but they made the choice. You have spoken words. You have spoken the words. You have spent the money. You have picked up the bottle. So, before God, you have to own your own stuff. You have to own your own stuff. And it's likely worse than the generation before stuff. Because, as we've seen, these things tend to grow. Once you get to that point, you have to do number three which is this, you have to repent for your part in it. This isn't just an admission of guilt. This is an actual, you understand, we've talked about repentance before. Repentance isn't just, I'm so sorry I did this, God. It is getting to a place where you actually go, I am going to turn this around. Best talk I ever heard on generational sin, a guy, uh, and I should, I should do this one time because it's a power, it stuck with me for 20 years. He talked about generational sin essentially being like a chain link fence. And if you ever get a chain link fence, every link goes exactly the same direction as the link before it. But you have a choice in your life to turn around, to repent of this generational sin, and start the links going in a different direction. It does not have to end this way. It's not just an admission of guilt. It's getting with God, it's praying, it's putting into place plans and practices that will change the way things are in your family. It probably probably includes needing to go to somebody. In fact, here's the last one. It probably includes needing to go to somebody because these generational patterns of sin, these elephants that are in your family room, your family needs to be restored and it needs to be reconciled. Restoration and reconciliation. You go and you deal with what you have done. You have the difficult conversation. You become what Jesus calls us to be, the reconcilers, because you can still... Literally bless thousands of generations by doing this. This is the most powerful principle you have for leaving a legacy. Your name will be forgotten. Your money will be spent. But you could clear elephants out of your family room. You can keep pretending everything's normal. But your legacy, unfortunately, will not be based on how much money you left. Your elephants are going to live on. I'll close with this, band, you guys can come up. In contrast to that family in New York State, many of you might have heard of Jonathan Edwards, a renowned local, local guy who lived in Princeton, a renowned theologian and pastor. There was another family heritage that was studied involving a couple who lived about the same time. The, the second family study began with this preacher, Jonathan Edwards, He was born in 1703 a deeply religious man. He lived a life of strong moral values and became a minister and a dedicated family man. He married a deeply religious woman named Sarah who shared his values and together they had 11 children. Eventually, Jonathan Edwards became the president of Princeton University. They went back and looked at his family. Here's what researchers just discovered about the 1,400 descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards by 1874. 13 were college presidents. 65 were college professors, 100 were attorneys, 32 were state judges, 85 were authors of what were deemed classic books, 66 were physicians, 80 held political offices, including three state governors, three were state senators, and one became vice president of the United States of America. That is the power you have as you connect with Christ to get serious once and for all about the elephant in your marriage with your money and with your kids and with your parents. So I just want to close in prayer and encourage you one more time. Don't walk out of this and go, that was really interesting stuff. Walk out of it committed to be the one who changes the way the links go in your family. Lord, The wisdom of the proverb writer, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And it echoes for a thousand generations. Lord, as we close what has been challenging, it's so hard for us, Lord. In so many ways, we're just emotionally stunted people, Lord. We don't know how to go to one another. We don't like difficult things. We avoid conflict like the plague. Lord, would you teach us in deep places to stop worrying about where our money is going to go because that will be long gone. Would you make us a people that are with an eye on on the things of the kingdom, willing to set aside everything and all things so that an echo, a, a generational echo of godliness might break the pattern of generational sin and lead people towards the cross of Christ for the next thousand generations in everyone's family in this room. I pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, the all-powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and conclude.